Hello, my name is Miriam Ambrosino, and I'm going to be presenting on affective self-reflection in phenomenological practice. I open my presentation with a quote by Gail Salomon in her recent article, What's Critical About Critical Phenomenology? Here, Salomon remarks that the problem and promise of openness may still be the source from which phenomenology's richest possibilities spring forth, even in dark times. This presentation will investigate a potential problem that arises given the openness of phenomenology to contemporary critical aims. I look to Lisa Gunther's chapter in the recently published 50 Concepts for a Critical Phenomenology, where she argues that the goal of critical phenomenology is not only to describe, but also to transform the socio-political world at the level of transforming our own toxic affective commitments. I will examine the challenge of how second-person reading experience of a first-person phenomenological account can function as critical phenomenological evidence for scholars invested in this new aim of doing transformative affective work. I will end my presentation by engaging Louise Rosenblatt's transactional theory of reading as a way of securing the promise of phenomenological inquiry to open itself up to take on these sociopolitically salient aims. Through my brief case study of Fanon's chapter, The Lived Experience of the Black Man, in his book Black Skin, White Masks, I clarify how engaging transactional theory can support a method that is uniquely suited to make affective critique, or what Gunther will call emotional work, a viable project in embracing the openness of phenomenology to other disciplines. So I turn my attention to Fanon's text next. He asserts, Jean-Paul Sartre forgets that the black man suffers in his body quite differently than the white man. Fanon demonstrates the critical orientation of his phenomenological inquiry by refusing reference to universal or transcendental structures of experience. This prompts the question, how can the, phenomenolo the phenomenologist engage with first-person accounts of experience as second-person phenomenological evidence, especially in foregrounding affective experience in this inquiry, if structures of sense-making differ between the scholar reading the account and the subject recalling their experience in the first person? For example, in Fanon's text, he accounts shifting, he develops shifting affective tensions over the course of his chapter. He explicitly articulates emotions such as, quote, shame, shame, and self-contempt, and also rhetorically develops changing affective highs and lows throughout the text. The qualitative mood of his phenomenology changes as he later describes his externalized contempt for white oppressors, who he refers to as, quote, prophets of doom. Upon recognizing that it is the white race that, quote, lacks a wealth of subtleness and sensitivity, whereas employing A.M. Vergiat's language, quote, the black man today is richer in gifts than in works, Fanon develops a sense of pride for his race. The mood of the chapters seems to take on a quality of elation, as he says, I'm not accommodating anyone. I had won. I was overjoyed. The chapter ends with a sense of overwhelm that contrasts this affective high. He writes, not responsible for my acts at the crossroads between nothingness and infinity, I began to weep. I present this passage because it leads me to ask, what would a phenomenological reading of Fanon's chapter entail that foregrounds these emotional tones and tensions of the text if I, a white female reader, cannot mimetically attune to the lived affective experience of a black man? It is unclear what I am illuminating in the second person if I take feelings as the object of my engaged phenomenological critique. Lisa Gunther thematizes the implicit commitment of Fanon's text when she explains that critical phenomenology deviates from classical phenomenology to the extent that it recognizes structures of experience as quasi-transcendental structures. These structures are constituted by and co-constituting of one's historical and social situation. Recognizing structures of experience as quasi-transcendental reveals that systems of oppression such as sexism and racism are not solely out there in the world. These systems act on the side of the intentional subject, fundamentally altering and impacting one's sense-making capacities and shaping the way they come to acquire a world. Given Gunther and Fennel's move away from a pure consciousness that is fundamentally independent of the socio-historic context of the subject, 
Critical phenomenology must revise its transcendental ambitions. As Fanon already makes clear in his criticism of Sartre, the aims of inquiry cannot remain fixed on illuminating universal structures that make lived experience possible without appreciating the irreducible situatedness of these structures for particular individuals and social groups. Gunther then argues that critical phenomenological practice, quote, needs to develop and refine a set of conceptual tools and methods for tracking the influence of these contingent structures on our meaning-making capacities. According to Gunther, the project of illuminating these quasi-transcendental structures is not sufficient for defining the critical component of critical phenomenology. Defining critical phenomenology as a, quote, transformative political practice, Gunther maintains that revealing through phenomenological reflection how conditions of the social world shape and injure one's meaning-making capacities must serve the project of transforming these structures of oppression. The ultimate goal, she writes, of critical phenomenology is not just to interpret the world, but also to change it. However, Gail Weiss makes clear in her article, Denaturalizing the Natural Attitude, a Husserlian Legacy to Social Phenomenology, that the transformative project of critique that Gunther sets forth still requires using descriptive methods employed by classical phenomenology. Employing Husserl's natural attitude as that which specifically can and must be transformed, Weiss suggests that quasi-transcendental structures, which Gunther identifies as co-constitutive of lived experience, reside or more specifically act at the level of our tacit and pre-reflective engagement with the world. Contra Husserl, Weiss argues that by adopting the phenomenological attitude, the scholar alters the natural attitude upon kind of returning from this mode of reflection. Therefore, phenomenology allows one to interrogate and indirectly change the natural attitude by bracketing and assessing experience, bracketing it and assessing experience. So the transformative practice of critique requires phenomenology's ability to denaturalize these toxic or oppressive ways of being that because they allied our immediate conscious grasp when we are in the natural attitude, do not lend themselves to direct intervention. So I look at to affects as the new object and mode of critique. By adapting the concept of the natural attitude, we see that societal prejudices do not reside at the level of conscious belief, but rather at a pre-reflective level. So quasi-transcendental structures of racism or sexism, for example, shape our experience at the level of our feelings and implicit attitudes. Gunther claims that if the transformative commitments of critical phenomenology start by illuminating these quasi-transcendental structures, then one's feelings must become a kind of access point for the scholar. Attending to implicit feelings as the objects of inquiry can be a productive political practice for the phenomenologists to discover where and how these structures may be acting and shaping our experience. We get a specific account of how affects motivate oppressive beliefs and behaviors in Alia Alsaji's concept of racializing affect and perception in her Phenomenology of Hesitation. Alsaji argues that racializing vision is distinct from non-racializing forms of vision when one notes the unique rigidity of its habits and the dehumanizing effects of these sense-making relations. This distinctness of racializing vision can be partially explained by the fact that the intentionality of racializing vision is supported by affects. Affects function as, quote, the motivating and material support of racializing perception, as Alsaji writes. And a key characteristic of racializing affects is that they are experienced immediately and urgently, the felt immediacy of racializing affects prevents the subject from assessing their own role and constituting the other, for example, as repulsive, and thus presents the object of the racist gaze as the cause of the thoughts one attaches to the object of perception, and also the cause of the feelings that accompany these perceptions. The rigidity of racializing vision, which Alsaji partially attributes to the short time interval in which these affects are experienced, involves the inability for the subject to see, think, and feel otherwise. And Alsaji says that the I cannot see or feel otherwise of racializing vision constitutes a pathological self, a lack of self-awareness, which she terms the ethical unresponsiveness of racializing vision. 
And to use Fanon's terms, the affective, these affective hyperreactions of racializing affect undermine the project of denaturalizing and transforming one's own racist natural attitude that so far I've presented as a key aim of critique. I underscore both the potentially toxic effects of feelings in perpetuating oppressive practices and also, or because of this, the unique value of affects and feelings in developing the critical method that must follow from critical phenomenology's new ambitions to reveal and transform quasi-transcendental conditions of consciousness. Resonating with this call for a new methodological practice, Alsaji clarifies that, quote, anti-racist practice needs to be more than a cognitive intervention. It is within perception and affectivity that critical anti-racist practice must find its tools. In locating the domain of affective experience as the new object and methodological tool of critical phenomenological inquiry, Gunther specifies that critical inquiry requires emotional work. She says that critique is not just a matter of disinterested theoretical reflection. It's also a, mode, a, a matter of assuming a mode of introspection. Similarly, Alsaji claims that, quote, denaturalizing affect involves then not only the suspension of its immediacy, but also changing its directionality, for the naturalized causality that affect enforces needs to turn back onto the feeling perceiving social subject as its source. This way of foregrounding one's own affects in phenomenological inquiry seems to avoid the issue of attempting to understand in a mimetic way the affective experience of a subject who is differently situated from the scholar who reads their account. However, there is a concern that if I attend to my own feelings and introspection during or after a reading of Fennell's text, then I allow my phenomenological work to encourage a solipsism that effaces the text in Fennell's experience. However, I emphasize that when Alsaji holds the critical practice must turn onto the feeling perceiving social subject as its source, she assumes a concept of affect or feeling that is fundamentally intersubjective. I will briefly explain how a reading of Bergsonian affect involves becoming responsive to the other. Alsaji clarifies that affect is an effort in which the body works on itself in response to the world. In this account of affect, she conceives that the subject is already constituted by and constituting the social domain, and this does not conceive of, feeling, of the feeling self as self-contained and pre-given. She explains, affect exposes, expresses the body's exposure to what is other, in her words, and delays habitual reactions by making these otherwise unreflected reactions felt. Affect as a bodily interruption of habitual reactions can disrupt one's natural attitude and make one register the existence of the other by intervening on our taken-for-granted social existence. I understand her to hold that turning to one's affective reactions and self-reflection can become critical if this reflection glimpses the intersubjective relation that the mechanisms of oppression, such as perceptual practices of othering, conceal. So recognizing the intersubjectivity of affect in this way, I argue that the second-person experience of the scholar can already imply a relation, an affective relation, with the author's first-person experience. Using affect as the, as the tool of critical anti-racist work by no means calls for the scholar to see from the eyes of the other in an affectively mimetic way. Therefore, the inability to read a text from the first-person point of view of the author is by no means an intractable problem for critique and phenomenology. By attempting to explain, by tending to one's own affects, one witnesses a social relation in and through their self-reflection, so that the responsibility to the other and their habits of feeling and perceiving are made visible. So I turn back to Fennell's text. For example, Fennell is already explaining to his reader that the white race lacks the wealth of subtleness and sensitivity, or what he writes, emotive sensitivity, to the suffering of the black race. I argue that he is not only asking for the reader to feel, he's not re asking for the reader to feel the first person shame he recounts in this chapter. Fennell is cueing to the white reader to turn onto their own thinking, perceiving, and feeling self. 
He reveals to the white reader how their lack of responsiveness to the oppression of the black man, or their lack of a felt interruption in their habitual mode of feeling, has played a role in the perpetuation of his oppression and is already intersubjectively implicated in the shame that he experiences and explicitly mentions in his chapter. What is at stake in identifying the value of affect and critique is exposing this relationship at the level of one's own unchecked and unchanged feelings. Thus, if I, as a white scholar, fail to read Fennell's account without attention to his own feelings, to his feelings, and how they are related to my own politically and socially invested affective commitments, which reside in my white natural attitude, then I have missed an opportunity to do the critical work that the lack the critical work on this lacking emotive sensitivity that Fennell mentions. This self-reflection allows one to become responsive to one's own culpability and responsibility to another person's life. Thus, at the same time, this phenomenological evidence in the second person motivates the project of self-transformation in one's own habits of feeling and perceiving that so far I have argued is a necessary aim of critique. I want to turn to Merleau-Ponty and his preface to the phenomenology of perception in which he provides an account of the crucial role of affect in inciting the phenomenological reduction. Drawing from Sarah Heinema's interpretation of Merleau-Ponty's reduction, I emphasize that he understands that the phenomenological reduction is fundamentally affective. Merleau-Ponty vis-a-vis Eugen Fink views wonder as a mode of feeling that does the work of loosening the intentional threads and revealing the taken-for-granted being in the world of our natural attitude. Although Merleau-Ponty provides an account of affect as a disclosatory mode that can, quote, rupture our familiarity with the world, I want to emphasize that wonder and the reduction it incites is not sufficiently critical because in its immediacy, the making strange of the world that it affects could likely under, undermine the transformative potential of affect, much like the racializing affect that Alsaji describes in her work. Alsaji's hesitation is useful for thinking about how affective catalyzers to the reduction such as wonder can become critical rather than defensive modes. Hesitation involves bracketing the immediacy of racializing affect in order to modulate its temporality and slow down the interval in which it is structured and experienced, as Alsaji explains. And I see Alsaji's method of hesitation as a form of self-reflection that aims to feel our social relations and responsibility in these relations through a temporal intervention on our habits of feeling. In fact, Alsaji contends that making affect, affect critical requires, quote, taking on the task of living with others in order to indirectly provoke opportunities to hesitate. Through altering our relationality in situations of coexistence while hesitating, one can indirectly reconfigure their unreflected habits of seeing and feeling. Alsaji explains, I think that making hesitation productive requires the task of living with, in whatever form it takes, be an enduring process. And she clarifies, living with can take many forms, in activism and in friendship, in the shared spaces of work and as in school as well as home, enduring experiences of coexistence take place. Considering the many forms which living with can take, I suggest that we can refocus our understanding of the reading first-person accounts of experience in the second person. Instead of serving as a problem for critical inquiry, reading first-person accounts of experience can serve as occasions of living with, for the critical phenomenologist to engage their methodology in new ways and for new aims. As Osagi already notes, we should hesitate in moments in which co coexistence is already taking place. This prompts my consideration of how instances in which phenomenologists already could coexist with others in the form of living with a text can serve as opportunities to provoke and practice affective hesitation. And this leads to my last chapter of this presentation, where I ask, how can adopting an aesthetic attitude as a form of an engaged phenomenological attitude while reading allow the phenomenologist to do this critical emotional work? By aesthetic attitude, I specifically refer to my engagement with Louise Rosenblatt's terminology in her transactional theory of reading, inspired by the pragmatist epistemologies of William James and John Dewey. 
Rosenblatt's use of the term transactional resonates with the way in which critical phenomenologists employ the concept of intersubjectivity. For Rosenblatt, a transactional engagement with a text signifies an intersubjective relationship between the reader and the author, or the text. According to Rosenblatt, the work of art as a transaction or intersubjective relation implies that the meaning of a work is understood as a dynamic situation between the reader and the text. In locating the work of art within the intersubjective and lived-through relationship between the reader and the text, Rosenblatt holds that the object of critique is the work as experience. The aesthetic attitude and the attitude which she finds best suited for the transactional approach requires attention to the overtones of feelings, she writes, and affective attention to the experience of reading itself. She holds that the aesthetic attitude allows the reader to attend more to their emotional qualitative responses and how these responses are related to the formal elements, ideas, and moods of the text. The importance of the aesthetic attitude as a mode of critique is that it takes the inchoate experience of reading as the key object of concern for the critic and asks them to selectively attend to how these experiences develop throughout the reading process. Rosenblatt upholds that, quote, the text presents limits or controls, though, the personality and culture brought by the reader constitute another type of limitation on the resultant synthesis, which she refers to as the lived-through work of art. She clarifies that the concept of transaction emphasizes a relationship with, and as she writes, a continuing awareness of the text as a kind of, tech, as a kind of check on one's own reactions. By upholding the value of the text as a constraint that one must consistently refer when occupying an aesthetic attitude, Rosenblatt offers a framework of reading that could be applied by phenomenologists so that they engage in self-reflection without effacing the author or text that grounds their second-person reading experience. A reading of Fennell's chapter that engages a transactional approach would hold the chapter as experience in the second person as the object of critique. In adopting an aesthetic stance, the scholar quite literally must read slowly to direct their attention to the details of writing, as well as to their affective states that develop in reaction to the text, or that become evident through the reading, reading the text. The critic implicates themselves in the inquiry at each moment of reading Fennell's chapter, losing sight of neither the text nor their own responses through a conscious labor to move back and forth between both poles of the text and the reader. In addition, they return to the text after secondary reflection to reactivate new experiences or new transactional experiences for further self-assessment. For example, upon reading Fennell's chapter for the first time, I was first overwhelmed with a vague sense of discomfort, and upon my second reading experience, I focused my attention on this discomfort rather than on my comparative analysis of Fennell and Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology, my initial, my initial project. In doing so, I was able to make clear that I was attempting to disidentify with the group of white oppressors that Fennell explicitly mentions in different ways, perhaps out of my own feelings of white shame as a white reader. I referred my feelings of discomfort to the language Fennell uses to implicate me in his account, such as the white race, quote, the white world, or when he writes, quote, the light-skinned races have come to despise all those of darker color. I should add this transactional approach to a phenomenological reading of Fennell's text can only really foster a critical phenomenological reduction, though, if one uses it as an occasion to provoke hesitation. For example, in the aesthetic attitude, I can allow myself to attend to how references of the body, such as, quote, congealed black blood and the, quote, rush of blood, incite a disgust reaction that phenomenologically pulls the object of the text close to my attention while tempting me to look away. By occupying an aesthetic attitude, I'm able to direct my attention to the fact that I am disgusted while reading and point to what textual elements activated this experience. Through enacting Alsaji's hesitation, I can sustain this feeling in order to glean what it reveals about my relationship to Fennell or his experience as a black man. Thus, by hesitating, I refuse turning away and allowing myself to thematize how these feelings constitute the defensive hyper-reactions that Fennell attributes to the white person's, quote, aftershock, as he writes. Thus, in adopting Rosenblatt's aesthetic stance in the transaction with the text, 
I become aware of the affect that the transaction with the text evokes for me. In hesitating on these affects, I can reflect during and after reading on how my disgust reactions reenact habits of white defensiveness that could undermine my project of personal anti-racist work. I do not lose awareness of myself nor Fennel in the self-reflection. Instead, I uncover the social and historical stakes of our relationship. This demonstration is by no means an exhaustive example of how to engage a critical phenomenology of Fennel's chapter with transactional reading. I offer it as a brief example of how, through reading, the phenomenologists can become aware of their relationship to others, in and through an awareness of their own affective experience with a text. In this way, we can see how the treatment of a text from a transactional approach can serve as a form of living with others that Al-Saji calls for in the form of living with a text. In living with Fennel's text and adopting an aesthetic attitude in my transactional reading, I can become reoriented by Fennel's account in a deeply personal way, while or because I keep sight of the quasi-transcendental structures that differently situate me in Fennel. In developing an emotional awareness through reading, I become responsive to Fennel's account, and I allow, as Al-Saji writes in her piece, my affective map to shift, without aiming to read his experience as it is lived by him in the first person. So the question of how phenomenological evidence can function in the second person is a prime example of the problem and promise of openness that I highlighted in the beginning of this presentation. By providing a method for each scholar to differently engage with phenomenological evidence in a personal way, transactional reading takes advantage of these limits of the second person sphere and allows it to be a productive new opportunity for critical phenomenology to engage with emotional work. Through reading, phenomenological practice itself can become an enduring process of being reoriented by others at the level of our own scholarship practices, as scholars take seriously the idea that the most promising critical work to be done is on ourselves. Thank you so much.